it, so like that's it's 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 a very mm-hmm. frustrating movie just because of like <sighs> there there's good aspects of it from a technical craft wise and but it's just again it's so myopic and so only focused on the western perspective even while it's 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 recognizing that dropping the bomb on japan was bad right well look not every movie can be a well-rounded masterpiece like mystery men so (laughs) or what's one what's one with robert downey jr in it kiss kiss bang bang i think that's the only one i could think of i mean i don't i wouldn't call that movie a masterpiece and i no, neither would i but it definitely is is one of the movies with robert downey jr (laughs) in it that's true (laughs) uh but if but i will say if you want to watch a movie from this year that's a a less am uh, like ambiguous on whether it's good or terrible uh, check out the movie Past Lives. Great movie. This has been my uh, movie advice corner. <laughs> Past Lives. All right. What's yeah, that well, about? I mean... Past Lives is uh, about uh, two uh, like a uh, 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 young Korean boy and Korean girl who are separated when her family emigrates to Canada, uh, and then eventually she moves to the U.S. And so it's about them like who were they were really close when they were kids and then it, it there's like jumps in time to show them like reconnecting at points in their lives as it goes on and it's a really it's it's, it's kind of it's a much small it's a pretty small scale movie there's really only mm-hmm. like three characters and it's it's largely just about like you know the kind of the weirdness about how like you build these really strong relationships with people but then you can be separated by huge gulfs of time and then how trying to reconnect after that you're like kind of a different person mm-hmm. at that point and how but but you still have that bond with those people i'm doing a really bad job of describing this it's a really really good movie <laughs> it's a, wait, yeah. so it's about the the la- the lastingness of friendship sort of although they were it's it's more than that cuz they were like uh, they were like they were like 12 13ish so they weren't really like boyfriend girlfriend but they were kind of I wasn't I didn't say I didn't say rom-com I said friendship <laughs> No 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 but that's what I'm saying is it's more than it's not just their relationship isn't just plat- like entirely platonic and that's right. like it, there's so a lot of it is about like what time does to like romantic feelings and things like it's it's a good again i'm doing a bad job describing this this and uh looking at its wikipedia real quick it was made for 12 million dollars and (laughs) budget and ended up box officing 20 million dollars once again proving that jordan peele is absolutely correct that if you make (laughs) movies in the low millions of dollars studio executives won't show up and fuck up your movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's true I, i also that's the other thing i think this is like the feature debut uh, for the director who made it, which if if so is uh, incredible, <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah. I, I did I watch Godzilla. You oh, know. the new one minus one. Yeah, I've heard that's really good, but I also heard it has weird Japanese nationalism in it, which is not supposed to be in Godzilla. Uh, oh, whoa. okay, hold on. the The director for um, Past Lives. Uh, I was just looking up if she had done stuff before. In November 2020, Song directed a live production of Chekhov's The Seagull using The Sims 4 on Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yes. I like this lady. <laughs> As to the Godzilla thing, I mean, yeah, I I feel like maybe they were like trying to explain how fascist the government was and that Is. the people were and well, Are. I mean, 
Uh, yeah, that also. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was good and enjoyable. And the thing that I was like is like when they say these really awful things, like disowning someone because they weren't a kamikaze pilot or because they they ditched wow. their kamikaze pilot thing, that they were like, I was like, yeah, well, that's that's actually believable. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I saw a really I great been, meme. Yeah, I do. I have been wanting to check it out. I've heard it's it's pretty cool. I saw a really great meme recently that was like, um, "Why are they putting politics in movies?" And then it was just every Godzilla or related kaiju film from like all the way back when they started till now. And under it was like the very unambiguous message of the movie that's like, <laughs> "Ecological catastrophe is coming. We should be kinder to animals. We should be kinder to each other. We should be kinder to ourselves. We should be kinder to Godzilla specifically." <laughs> Uh, or this one, which is uh, Godzilla is the nuclear bomb. Yeah. Well, I mean, fair that's, enough. that's always been kind of an undercurrent mm-hmm. running. But like, I mean, even like the more recent one, like Shin Godzilla that came out a couple of years ago, which was like the whole movie is just criticizing the like liberal quasi fascist bureaucracy in Japan and its response to Fukushima. So that's that. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like that's the it's like. Kaiju movies have long been some of the most political movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, imagine destroying a society not being pol- like be- yeah. not having to be made political. <laughs> like if you don't make it political in some sense, you haven't made a movie. I'm not saying every person in the world needs to become like a a Frederick Jameson scholar, but I am begging for media literacy. I'm begging for it. <laughs> you can't just know what the words mean. You have to know what the sentence is. And the paragraphs mean, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Ah, I guess we're going to start the show now. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported kaiju movie review show, so thank you so much for (laughs) supporting us on Patreon. If you do, hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. If you're a patron who needs stickers, just message me on Patreon. And if you want to help us a little bit more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help. Yeah. So... Uh, we're going to get started this week. Before we hop into like a deeper story, there's just a few quick follow-ups uh, I-, I wanted to bring to people's attention just to close the loop on a few stories uh, in-, in a good way. Uh, so first, you know, a few months ago, we had talked about the fact that workers at Ben & Jerry's uh, organized under the excellent uh, title of Scoopers United um, had won a neutrality agreement basically, an agreement from Ben and Jerry's to allow a card check election. And so uh, this week, that election uh, finally actually happened, and the workers formally voted to officially unionize and join UFCW Local 371. And so they will now begin negotiations for their first contract. And so congratulations to our brave unionized ice cream workers. Hell yeah. And workers at Grinder finally had their election as well, but facing far more repression. I mean, we talked about how there was basically half of the work staff that ended up being forced to quit due to mm-hmm. the return to office policy mm-hmm. and just like some of the most 
awful things that were literally direct retaliation in response to the stated goals of the union that they had posted. But despite that, the remaining workers had pressed on and won their election 19 to 13. But however, I mean, Grinder has challenged enough of the ballots that the NLRB will have to examine them before officially certifying the union. On Twitter, the Grinder union said, quote, in light of what we've faced during our campaign, this preliminary count demonstrates how strongly we feel about our cause, the community we serve, and how much we care for each other as workers and colleagues, end quote. And just a big congratulations to them, especially in the face of the massive repression from the this fucking company. Yeah, I mean, when you figure that the company has probably already filtered out Uh, a lot of people who would have voted for the union both by attacking people who were most vocal about it and by using return to office policy as a way to in some ways target people who needed the union most in the first place it's really impressive that they still managed to pull off 19 to 13 yeah absolutely so oh yeah all our solidarity with the folks at the grinder union uh, and then lastly, on our last little quick update here, uh, you know, last week we talked about the workers at the KCVG Air Hub, uh, the DHL's like largest single air hub in the country, where the, I think it's 1,100 Teamster workers there, they're like the the ramp and tug workers who, you know, do the difficult and dangerous job of moving cargo and all this stuff around active airplanes. Um And the company just continues to refuse to negotiate with them in good faith. And so the workers there went on strike last week. And so, unfortunately, DHL has continued to try and be like, no, it's fine. We'll just divert traffic to other sites. Uh, We'll just get around this, which I don't actually think is feasible. But because of the fact that they've continued to refuse to accept, you know, the need to come and just agree to a fair contract, the Teamsters aren't just waiting around to uh, just, like, drag this out. They have escalated the strike and established pickets at other DHL locations all around the country, including in Boston, Los Angeles, and several other cities. And by establishing picket lines at those locations, activated their ability to not cross picket lines (laughs) and thus shut down DHL locations uh, from coast to coast. And so uh, love to see this sort of uh, escalating tactic from the Teamsters here. Yeah, and one of the videos that the Teamsters had posted was of a picket line where there was a a picketer in a blow-up cow costume, which was very, very entertaining. The tweet saying, uh, the Teamsters have beef with DHL US. (laughs) Yeah, we we love the pun-based picketing, uh, solidarity, and keep it up. (laughs) Hell yeah. And then we have another big uh, bunch of follow-ups to hit uh in our series where we cover basically just worker actions uh standing up to the ongoing genocide in gaza and it really in the region more broadly as israel's military uh scope kind of starts to expand in a rather suspicious way but uh, we do see more workers fighting back against our government's complicity in particular or their own government's complicity because on tuesday in canada 200 labor activists from Workers Against War, Labor Against the Arms Trade, and Labor for Palestine blockaded the Mississauga, Ontario, Pratt & Whitney plant. The factory provides engine parts for F-35s and drones used by the Israeli war machine. Picketers blocked cars from entering the plant parking lot, preventing it from operating for the day. 
And Rachel Small, an organizer with World Beyond War, said, quote, As a parent, how can I ignore that companies like Pratt & Whitney right here in my city are shamelessly supporting and profiting from the mass murder of Palestinian children? If the Canadian government won't stop the flow of weapons to Israel and stop companies like Pratt & Whitney... Uh, Pratt and Whitney Canada from exporting weapons used in Israeli war crimes, then those of us with a moral conscience are forced to take whatever actions we can to stop a genocide. End quote. And I mean, uh, yeah, if there's literally any way any worker can stand up for this in, in a meaningful sense, it's so important that we do so. And that's why, like, you know, one of the many reasons we talk about unions being important in general, because it's not just like you want to fight for better pay or whatever. It's like, hey, if you want to take a stand against genocide and not lose your job over it, it's important to have union protection for that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and, and it's like it's also because it's like these are this is the way you can make a direct material immediate impact, you know, mm -hmm. on our uh, all of our, you know, all the Western governments complicity in in this violence because you know obviously you know, people should still keep going to protest because the protests have made a difference i mean there have even been quotes from netanyahu himself saying that they've been under a lot ton of pressure from all of the protests in in capitals around the world but in addition to that like to make to do actions that are immediate in their efficacy it really does take collective worker action to make those sorts of impacts, things like the blockades that Italian workers in Genoa have mm -hmm. been doing, that Spanish workers in Barcelona have been doing, that the, the, seemingly the entire labor movement of Belgium has been doing, which is great. Um, workers in Melbourne and in, in, in Australia have been blockading ports. Obviously, we talked about the folks in Oakland um, and in I think Tacoma, maybe. <laughs> Sorry, there have been so many of these actions, which is good. And so, again, this same thing here with these workers in Ontario, like, this is the sort of thing, it's like, if you want to talk about whether it's good to unionize workers in the weapons industry, this is should be the whole purpose mm -hmm. of organizing workers in the weapons industry is so that you can shut those industries down and convert them into um, other production that actually helps people. And so really glad to see these Canadian workers doing this. But um, we also saw actions here in the U.S. Uh, like just a couple of days ago, uh, on I on the same night that JVP did one of their the Jewish Voice for Peace did one of their most impressive nationwide actions where they shut down eight major highway bridges all over the country on the eighth night of Hanukkah in, in order to demand a ceasefire, which I think was a really powerful action. So shout outs to JVP. Um, but on that same night, uh, there was a die-in staged at. Uh, Google's San Francisco offices by Google workers demanding that the company stop its project Nimbus that workers have been organizing against for, I think, over a, at least over a year at this point, maybe a couple years, um, which is basically it's this like tech program where Google provides computer assistance for the various administration programs that are involved in the uh, running the apartheid system in uh in occupied Palestine, uh, with you know some historical shades of IBM, there does that um, include their AI program that they they use to increase the number of targets uh, that they bomb? I don't know. I think that was developed in house um, by by the Israeli military, but I'm not sure. They only just started reporting on that, so. Yeah, I mean, um, we did have that Israeli general just the other day who was like bragging about how we don't need 
Western technology, they forget that we are the masters of technology. Which is and not it, true. <laughs> no, it's it's not true. Like they have this thing called Download Valley, which is supposed to be one of their two Silicon Valleys that they have. And do you know what they make in Download Valley? Adware. Well, that's, yeah, that's their the big thing. export. It's like, <laughs> yes, like the the like CIA Mossad based tech industry there is mm-hmm. good at spyware. Yes, sure. specifically that. But uh, I mean, I would point to the the question of well, you've got all this incredible spyware and all this stuff, and uh, October seventh still happens. So I don't really know how uh, brilliant y'all are there. But anyway, <laughs> that's right. Um, so these Google workers, like, basically, they held this big protest. It's at Google's San Francisco HQ uh, to demand that Google stop supporting Israeli apartheid. And Valerie Kwan, a software engineer, told uh, local news station KQED, quote, Google is looking to exploit all of their workers' labor to profit off of war and profit off of Israeli genocide against the Palestinian people, end quote. And so, yeah, again, this is one of those things where like mass protest in the street is super important, but these individual, these work direct worker actions, I think are the sorts of, they, they can kind of act as like force multipliers and that they, they really hit um, the actual logistical arms of the way that our government supports uh, the Zionist colonial project. Well, it's, it's like a mirror of when you look at the way that, yeah, the, the way that they're supported by our government, they support them materially and through PR. So it's like those are the two fronts that you have to hit them on. It's like you have to make them look bad in the public in a way that can't be ignored with protests. But you also have to interrupt their supply chains enough mm-hmm. to make like a, a material difference at the same time. Yeah. And also collectively showing that workers themselves are standing up against this genocide. I mean, the rank and file are turning up the heat on union leaders who refuse to listen to the membership with multiple unions of the AFT, including Massachusetts Teachers, the Massachusetts Teachers Association and the Rutgers Adjunct Faculty Union broke from the national leadership of Randy Weingarten to demand the, the union call for a ceasefire. Rank and file members protested Weingarten, who has maintained their staunch support for Zionism despite the ongoing genocide. And I mean, they even spoke at an event in New York City on Wednesday, which I mean, them. Uh, there's actually a video of of people calling out Randy Weingarten, doing like what I and I was. A little surprised that they were willing to go so direct and uh, and so accurately is to be like, Randy, you can't hide. We're charging you a genocide. Like, I I think that going into that meeting and being that explicit is important from the rank and file, especially in a, an incredibly important situation like this. I mean, it's one of those things that's going to seem obvious in retrospect. So, like, I I always really appreciate when people do stand up and and take these kinds of actions seriously. Yeah. And in well, a yeah, state go ahead. And just yeah, briefly, I mean like Adam Johnson's been making the point about this on Twitter for weeks now, which is that he's like, at some point every liberal institution is going to call for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. The only question is how many dead Palestinians is it gonna take? And that's an incredibly important framing because it exposes the fact that it's like if you don't if you're gonna wait until there's thirty thousand, forty thousand Palestinians before dead before you call for a ceasefire, what you're just saying is that you you, you is that it's not so much that you think the slaughter is bad, it's that it's exceeded the ratio you fu- you've deemed acceptable of right. like of of, of what, like what percentage of human being you consider Palestinians to be. Yeah, no, absolutely, really, what good point. And in a statement, the rank and file teacher said, 
uh, quote, as educators, we cannot stand by while 9,000 children have been killed, hundreds of schools have been bombed, and millions of Gazans face starvation and death due to Israel's war and military occupation of Palestine. Unions across the country and the world have heeded the call to end the violence, including the UAW and APWU in the United States. It's time Randy Weingarten and the AFT leadership listen to their membership and stand with humanity in calling for an immediate ceasefire, end quote. Hell yeah. No, that rules. I mean, this is this is really important and really good to see because, like, we know that the majority of workers in this country are in favor of a ceasefire. Like wherever you like, look, there's a lot of political education to be done about settler colonialism and really to get to like the actual solution to this of a single state of, of just Palestine where everybody is, has the same rights. Uh, but regardless of that, pretty much mo- the vast majority of the working class is on board with a ceasefire. But if the workers aren't making themselves heard, and making it impossible to ignore, then it's easy for a lot of these leaders who, especially ones who aren't elected by like one member, one vote to just be like, to just ignore it. And so these sorts of actions make it impossible to ignore. And so I think these are, these are really, really great. I also think in addition to that, it's been great to see more of the larger unions speaking out about this and, and using larger and larger platforms to do that. Because like, also this week, like, uh, you know, the, those rank and file teachers mentioned the UAW. Well, President Sean Fain, joined Congress members, Cory Bush, Rashida Tlaib, and I think AOC uh, in Washington this week for a public call for a permanent ceasefire under the banners, unions for a ceasefire now. And uh, at the conference, Tlaib said, quote, I'm a proud daughter of a UAW worker, and I know my Yaba, or father, if he was here, he would be so proud. The UAW taught him he deserved human dignity, even though he only had a fourth grade education, and even though he was Palestinian, even though he was Muslim. On that assembly line, he was equal to every single human being on that line. Who did that for him? The United Auto Workers did that for him. End quote. That's honestly a a very powerful statement, and I read it and kind of kind of choke up a little bit because it's it's very true that the unions are the thing that you know bring about justice for people and i'm really glad to see the uaw really standing up and again you know sean fain elected by one member one vote i i think that that also plays into this just a little bit but he also and and also just like you know maybe a low bar to clear but that's handily the best thing i've heard an elected <laughs> official in this country say maybe in my life <laughs> well yeah i mean rashida talib has been like the like one good mm-hmm. <laughs> politician there have been she's been joined by a few others but she's been like the one consistently good one both on this and the connection between labor and this struggle right yeah uh, absolutely and and back to Sean Fain he said quote this is a product of our belief in humanity that innocent civilians must be protected. We cannot bomb our way to peace. The only path forward is to build peace and social justice through a ceasefire, end quote. And, I mean, I'm glad that not only are the locals standing up and then, you know, pressuring the national or the international to, you know, stand with the locals, but also that the president, Sean Fain, is willing to be like, 
yes, I am with the workers. I am, and I believe in this too. I think what, that that's what, really important and a good precedent to set in the labor movement. Well, that's one of the great things about Sean Fain is he has never shied away from making very plain spoken, matter of fact statements about whatever comes across his desk or whatever's relevant to the membership, you know? Well, yeah, and because it's like, it's it's one thing to like sign off on a statement about a ceasefire, but then it's an, it's, it, it's it's really good to see like people actually mm-hmm. becoming involved in this because like we don't we don't like look the calls for ceasefire are good it, it's really important I mean like one thing I didn't put this in the notes because it just happened like yesterday but we had like the two biggest like healthcare unions find mm-hmm. join the call too eleven ninety nine SEIU and National Nurses United uh, although I think they may have been calling for it earlier I'm not sure but either way they are they are both those unions are also calling for a ceasefire which is is great but. It's actually getting out there and making it a real piece of like the UAW's platform mm-hmm. is is really important and really good to see. I was honestly, so, and maybe it was wrong to be surprised about this, but that they didn't just make a statement and then go away. And I, I think that right. the fact that they're actually going and standing up where you know they said they would is mm-hmm. something that sets an example that must be followed. Well, as an American, you're conditioned to never expect that. So it's okay to be surprised still, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, and I mean, speaking of setting an example, uh, we've got a bit of a follow up here. You know, we we've been very excitedly covering over the last couple of weeks the launch of the UAW's Stand Up 2.0 organizing campaign at non-union automakers around the country. And they're like, we're wasting uh, no time uh, getting this campaign going and devoting resources to it because, you know, we talked last week about the fact that workers at uh, Volkswagen in Tennessee had reached 30% already signed cards over, I think, a 1,000 workers. Well, along with that rapid success has come uh, rapid union busting by uh, several of these companies. And so this week, the UAW filed ULP charges against three non-union automakers, specifically Honda, Hyundai, and VW, for various illegal forms of union busting. Yeah, uh-huh. and I mean, while we knew about the Chattanooga plant, v, uh, the, v, uh, the VW Chattanooga plant, uh, the fact that there were two more sets of ULPs filed against other companies really leads you to think that there is some organizing going on directly in there as well. Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, the the the, the rank and file led like distributed method of organizing here, I think, is is going to allow them to build really, really quickly. And so, yeah, these charges specifically relate to organizing efforts at Hyundai's factory in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which is one of the ones that I believe receives parts made by child labor. Um, Honda in Greensburg, Indiana. And VW's plant in Chattanooga that we discussed last week. And and per the union, Honda has been surveilling workers about their union activity, trying to find out who's a union supporter and who isn't. Uh, Hyundai has been confiscating and destroying union organizing materials from break rooms, both of those extremely common. I mean, frankly, nearly ubiquitous in U.S. union campaigns. And uh, workers at Honda told More Perfect Union that managers have demanded that they remove pro-union stickers from their hats with an implied threat of being written up if they didn't. Button claws. Yeah. Lots button of people claws. have been breaking the button claws lately. And 
uh, it's some bullshit. I, the uh, the Starbucks that just unionized here in Providence, four days after they successfully unionized, the company starts uh, attacking the workers for wearing union shirts, which is illegal. Yeah. Companies but stop doing this. People <laughs> think labor organizing is about making connections with people and understanding the needs of the workforce. Wrong. Labor organizing is about buttons and mold only. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, like, it may seem silly, like, that. It, I mean, we've talked about this, how like, there is a whole section about buttons it's because of shit like this about it being as you've been saying ubiquitous it's one of the most settled issues in labor which is weird but it once you start <laughs> looking at the stories it kind of makes sense well but and it is important because you know one of the things like look we talk about how much about union drives is you know improving material conditions raising your rate wages mm-hmm. uh shortening your hours giving you more time to see your family and it is about all those things but one of the things that you 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 hear time and time again from workers in big organizing drives, big strikes, especially like strikes for recognition and things like this, when you read like when you go through a lot of union history, time and time again, the thing that people talk about that they wanted more than anything else was just respect, just to be treated like an adult human being, and that's one of the things that I think is so key about these fights with the button claws. Is that it's like you are you are telling somebody that you're not allowed to wear this T-shirt because I say so for this arbitrary bullshit reason because you're not treating them like a real human being. Yeah, and, and it never came up before. There were other T-shirts. Right. There were other things worn, but suddenly this one. Right. So, yeah, I mean, these are these are fights worth having and fights worth winning. But in addition to those two. Uh, at VW, the plant where the organizing drive is furthest along, the union busting, unsurprisingly, seems to be the most intense. The UAW says that the VW management has, quote, harassed and threatened workers for talking about the union, confiscated and de- destroyed pro-union materials in the break room, attempted to intimidate and illegally silence pro-union workers, and has attempted to illegally prohibit workers from distributing union literature and discussing union issues in non-work areas on non-work time, end quote. Wow. Uh, the Starbucks method, where you yeah, just try I to mean, break every rule as fast as you can. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's all very similar to the Amazon um, mm-hmm. um, campaign, although I don't know that they've gone to quite the same lengths of, like, moving <laughs> traffic lights and, like... Uh, Putting a surveilled mailbox on the lot. Yeah, I don't think they've quite reached that point. But, hey, who knows? Uh, we're just at the start of this uh, campaign here. But um, as reported by Bloomberg... Both Honda and Hyundai immediately denied the claims of illegal union busting, while VW was a bit more cagey, saying they, quote, will investigate accordingly. <laughs> cool. We'll Which, do an in- what a investigation. Response. Yeah, we'll do an investigation and clear ourselves of all charges. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like this part of this may just be that VW's a bit cagey at this point about ever giving a direct answer about anything that they're doing since they were notably caught lying to environmental regulators in the EU for years to get their diesel vehicles to pass inspections. So they're not exactly a reliable source of information, even by uh, corporate standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so in a statement you know, about these ULP charges, UAW President Sean Fain said, quote, these companies are breaking the law in an attempt to get auto workers to sit down and shut up instead of fighting for their fair share. But these workers are showing management that they won't be intimidated out of their right to speak up and organize for a better life. From Honda to Hyundai to Volkswagen and beyond, we've got their back, end quote. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Thanks, Dad. We appreciate it. <laughs>
That's right. Oh, man. And, I mean, John, you mentioned Starbucks. We Mm -hmm. do need to actually, again, report on the campaign by Starbucks Workers United because Starbucks' illegal campaign of union busting against the workers, uh, as we know, has been one of the biggest stories of U.S. labor in the past two years. Due to U.S. labor law being written to favor the bosses, despite hundreds of ULP charges covering nearly every possible violation and on Honestly, nearly every possible location. Starbucks has largely received slap on the wrists uh, for their rampant lawbreaking. This week, the NLRB filed its broadest complaint against the company yet, demanding that Starbucks reopen 23 stores that it had closed in retaliation for workers organizing. On Wednesday, December 13th, the NLRB filed the complaint arguing that the company clearly closed the 23 locations in response to concerted protected activity. The complaint also seeks to give back pay and compensation for lost benefits for all of the workers that were illegally fired and due to these closed stores, uh, or even just like lost hours for workers that needed to transfer, I'm guessing. And I mean, the same day, Starbucks released a third-party report. This this story, oh my gosh, uh, report claiming to prove that there is no systemic union busting. Hold on, uh, I thought Starbucks didn't like third parties. I thought they didn't want to involve a third party in this dispute. Oh, well, well if it's a third party they hired to write a report that would say the thing they want, then it's good. Exactly. But also, that, that doesn't feel like a third party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, it may feel a bit like less of a third, like just bland third party and more of a mercenary. But, you know, <laughs> these are just different words. What do they mean? Yeah. They hired. Uh, the guy they hired is a former lawyer for Sodexo who was involved in a union busting campaign at that company. And that's the guy they hired as the supposed, uh, like, <laughs> neutral third party. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You know, were were war crimes committed? We ask Henry Kissinger. <laughs> right, right. No, exactly. That's. The, I mean, I, the, as soon as I saw this, the first thing I posted was the meme about you know the CIA investigated itself and found it was not involved in the crack trade. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, geez, we're gonna make that joke a, a couple times, I guess, because <laughs> it's just so applicable when it comes to union busting and companies being like, couldn't be me. Yeah, uh, the administrative law judge is actually going to spend time reviewing this complaint to decide, and by time I mean a lot of time, uh, to decide whether or not to even enforce the ruling. But uh, unfortunately, that is not expected until next summer. A judge ordered illegally shut stores in Ithaca to reopen months ago, but nothing has happened as Starbucks drags out the process via appeal and hopes to just demoralize the unionized workers through the process. While we applaud the NLRB for trying to rein in Starbucks with the tools they have, those tools are not actually designed to be effective. Mass collective action by unions especially like the example set in Sweden against Tesla, is what it will really take to force Starbucks to recognize the will of its employees to unionize and get them the contract that they deserve. Yeah, because like no matter how well-meaning all the folks at the NLRB are, and I'm sure there's plenty of them who are totally trying to do everything that they can, the thing is is that their bosses and their bosses' bosses in the government all love the Starbucks Corporation. Right. <laughs> so, like right. what are they going to do? Yeah, well, and the whole system, the the structures they're working in mm-hmm. are do not have the avenues that they would need in order to actually implement 
what they're trying to do. Because, like, look, this is look, in a, in a in a system that was actually set up to function in a supposedly neutral manner, which is not real, but is kind of how this is portrayed. Then a ruling by the NLRB to reopen 23 stores would result in the reopening of 23 stores. Mm -hmm. We don't know what this is going to result in because of the fact that they can just drag this out and drag this out and drag this out via appeal because that's how the system is set up. It's set up so that it's like they can wear you down forever because the the expenditures that they're spending on all people like Littler Mendelssohn, while too expensive for you know workers to to afford, is nothing for these corporations. Uh, yeah. And so like they can just keep dragging this out forever. And worst case, they lose it, their final appeal, and then they're just forced to reopen the store. There's no punitive damages. There's no like uh, criminal charges for mm-hmm. stealing people's jobs and upending their livelihoods. It's just paying people back what they would have paid, which would be great. And I hope is what happens. Uh, but it just shows that contradiction of trying to get redress for these issues within a system that's not actually set up to provide it, yeah, which is why it's so good that like, you know, you have workers United is they're pursuing these, you, these cases and stuff, but that's not their primary organizing thrust. It's, it's, it's continuing grassroots to continue to organize store by store, grow more and more workers, because that allows you to do bigger and bigger collective actions as they've been doing year on, uh, like year on year. And so like, while the, I think like looking at the, the outcomes of this horrible system that we're working in can be uh, depressing. I, I do think the continued success of the campaign shows the long-term strategic vision of the organizers at uh, Starbucks Workers United. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like, even if this makes it all the way up in our system, all the way up to, say, the Supreme Court, I don't know if that's how this works in this case, uh, it's not like the Supreme Court is, even if they rule in favor of the ruling, is going to then hand the powers down to the NLRB to just be like, okay, now you can just tell people to open up stores. Like, Right, no, you have to do it with every case. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. As long as we're talking about the way that getting systematically worn down highlights the contradictions of the system we're living in, let's talk about fast food work and its relationship to prison. Because this story had my brain uh, bending in ways that threatened to break it. Um, So (laughs) in a bizarre story, emblematic of both how little respect service workers in the U.S. receive and also how messed up our quote-unquote justice system is... This week, a judge sentenced a woman to work at Chipotle for two weeks as punishment for attacking a worker. So, an Ohio woman was er, originally... Hmm? I apologize. I think I messed up those notes. I think it's two months. Ah, yes. But uh, still, that that's not the important part of this. So, the story goes, an Ohio woman was originally sentenced to six months in jail for violently throwing her steaming hot food in the face of a Chipotle worker, but Judge Timothy Galligan decided to do some creative sentencing that we hear so much about in sitcoms, mostly, and suspended her sentence if she would agree to work in fast food part-time for two months. As reported by Cleveland radio station WJW, during the sentencing, Galligan said, quote, you didn't get your burrito bowl the way you like it, and this is how you respond? This is not real. Housewives of Parma. This behavior is not acceptable. End quote. <laughs> and the worker who was assaulted says that she ended up quitting Chipotle afterwards, but is happy with the sentence, saying, quote, she gets w- she's going to get what she deserves. She's going to learn how to work in fast food, and hopefully it will be good. End quote. I don't know why it was a lessened sentence. Like, no. Wh- why should it only be two months? 
Well, it should okay. still be six months. I, I, I don't have so add, many thoughts. I don't want to enter the ontological territory of being like, oh, it should have been this many weeks for that okay. thing. This many right. weeks. Fair enough. Let's stay in the epistemological realm of basically a judge has just given us math saying that this much time in jail is equal to this many weeks at Chipotle. Yes. And I think that if you <laughs> have right. even a basic introduction uh-huh. to how to carry out logic beyond the initial precepts that you're given, you'll start to see the kind of spanner that throws in the works of the way our entire society is arranged. Yeah. So, like what? One, one year working in fast food is like three years in prison? Yes, which feels yeah, roughly correct in <laughs> in a Rodney Dangerfield kind of sense. <laughs> yeah, because that's like that's the thing that blew my mind about this story is that I'm like, look, I don't even know that I'm necessarily opposed <laughs> to the admittedly very patronizing and somewhat patriarchal uh, form of punishment of. Oh yeah, well see how you like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is basically what this ruling is. But it's it's the fact that none of the people involved in this story are talking about exactly what you were just saying that it's like you just said that 2 months of working at Chipotle is the same as 6 months in prison. Doesn't that tell us something about how we treat the people that work at these places and about how maybe the the places should be forced to treat them better if working at Chipotle is considered worse than being in fucking jail. Right? <laughs> like, well, and also, I, like I you're, mean, in, it, 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 you're just like, admitting that a whole sector of our economy, and obviously, this is obviously we know this is true, but it's it's wild to see somebody essentially just tacitly admit that, oh, yeah, no, we have this huge swath, like millions of people working this as their living, and it's so bad, we basically think that it's like uh, prison work. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and But that's fine for them to be trapped in that situation for their whole life. That's normal and okay and acceptable, and we shouldn't do anything to improve the situation for these workers. And, and this might sound snide, but I think it is equally true, is that that goes the other way as well, which is that you're admitting that being in prison is as bad as working at a Chipotle, but you don't get paid to be in prison. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> I think this reflects pretty badly on every system involved. Yeah. Yes. No, I agree. It's like, look, I think the fact that this woman was horrible to somebody in fast food and then making her work in fast food, okay, I kind of get that. But again, we're sort of reifying mm. these these conditions of fast food and almost almost sanctioning in court like you're also almost sanctioning the idea of fast food work as penal labor like like mm-hmm. like when you have you, you you know like we talked about this in the military series where they're just like somebody has like alternative service this is like you're just like instead of where you have somebody who like gets hauled before a judge for like drunk driving or something they're like you can either go to to jail or you can sign up for the marines you know yeah. all these that sort or of you can now, work on you an ohio turnpike rest stop for six right. months <laughs> right or yeah you you could either go to jail or you can go work at Arby's. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. This it, it 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 seems a cop out, but it really does say a lot about our society. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, well, we're, we're really leading right into the next story, well, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, before we move on to I I also just want to just as a, a little rhetorical flourish, it this <laughs> sentencing so avoids 
so deeply like it's it's con- it considers itself clever and thinks it's attacking the root of the problem but it's actually so avoiding the root of the problem that yes. if you take it to its full end logic it's like oh you murdered somebody you have to work as a cop for 10 years right and it starts to feel like oh, wait a minute is that the that might actually be the already existing logic of capital right. just tweaked a little bit <laughs> like yeah yeah. That's why. Well, and I mean, like, like I was saying, time and again, we're reminded via, you know, the ongoing way- nature of our system, the the ways in which our our prison system is truly just one of the most appalling systems, and 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 indeed is actually a legacy of slavery in the mm-hmm. U.S. that did not end in 1865, nor did it end with the civil rights movement, but very much so continues today, just in different forms. One of the most prominent and profitable forms of modern slavery in the U.S. is prison slavery. As I was saying, we're leading right into what we were just talking about through some of our rhetoric. And this new class action lawsuit filed last week by prisoners in Alabama shows just how much of a legacy slave of slavery is actually baked into our modern economy. And, I mean, we've previously discussed the horrific conditions in Alabama prisons last year during the statewide strike by incarcerated incarcerated workers because incarcerated workers in Alabama receive horrible, inadequate food, crumbling housing, full of mold and pests. There it is. Uh, still, Yeah, still a mold podcast. With no air conditioning, <laughs> in blazing heat, and inadequate heat during cold months. Meanwhile, these prisoners are forced to work with no compensation. Workers who protest these conditions have been assaulted by guards, and black prisoners are denied parole at least twice the rate of whites, especially in cases where they didn't uh, they didn't do this work that was basically mandated of them and i mean just to call back to the fast food aspect of this story uh it basically is enabled partially by a system of convict leasing where the state of alabama brings in 450 million dollars to the state providing slave labor to giant corporations like mcdonald's and kfc there's our connection folks it's always the ones you suspect the most Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah I mean, and nearly 600 companies have used this system of slave slave labor in the last five years to increase their profits. The class action lawsuit filed this week by incarcerated workers aims to end the system of forced unpaid labor and require compensation for their work. Just well, and I I think I just want to underline that number there. That's 600 different companies involved in the use of prison slave labor in just Alabama, in just the last five years. Because, like, I think even for a lot of folks who are, like, aware, you know, you've you've read The New Jim Crow or seen the documentary Slavery by Any Other Name, and there's an understanding of, like, the abstract, I think, you know, uh, systemic nature of this. But, I, I, I mean, even for me, it's consistently shocking, like, at just how deeply this pervades the entire U.S. economy. Like, it's on a scale similar to, the like, the how deeply enmeshed the, like, military and war is in the U.S. economy. Like, the the, the pursuit of, of cheap or free labor has driven an enormous percentage of the U.S. economy into this sort of abuse of, of incarcerated workers. Yeah, yeah I mean, and I mean, $450 million is no small chunk of change. That's almost half no. a billion dollars. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, and that's for incredibly low wages as well. I mean, like... It's sometimes zero wages. Mm-hmm. What you would mm-hmm. call slave wages, and you would mm-hmm. be correct. Yes. Yeah. And then so the workers themselves are demanding a right to refuse work, which is wild that they don't have, uh, mm-hmm. at the very, very least... Uh, payment for those who have been forced to labor for free and an end to discrimination in the parole system. Because, again, as I pointed out before, black prisoners are denied parole at twice the rate of white prisoners. Well, and there's like a there's a multifaceted thing going on with the right to refuse work here, because I think as a labor show, it would be easy to be like, oh, that's their one strategy that they can really use to make any kind of change. But that's like being forced to work and not having the ability to opt out for any reason is an unbelievable health and safety concern. You have to imagine people Mm -hmm. are getting chronic injuries on the job all the time. Well, 100 percent. Well, and that's but that's a that's a selling point Mm -hmm. of 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 the of the prison labor is that it's like you don't have to pay benefits you don't have to pay health care you don't have to care mm-hmm. i mean it's basically the selling point that was for like all of the companies in germany that were using slave labor uh during the holocaust it's the same general idea uh it's just that we have so much ideology built up around law and order and retribution in this country that like it's it's again it's reified into the existing structure not to keep overusing that term but Um, so as reported by the New York times, the lawsuit states, quote, incarcerated people are trapped in this labor trafficking scheme. Although they are trusted to perform work for the state, local governments, and a vast array of private employers, some of the same people who profit from their coerced labor have systematically shut down grants of parole. The more people ADOC keeps incarcerated and working, the more money ADOC can reap through their forced labor and wrongful detention scheme, and the greater their economic incentive to keep perpetuating that unlawful scheme, end quote. And I got to say, that's some good structural analysis. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, like, that's better than you're going to get out of most of your like hoity-toity articles in the New Yorker. Yeah, and people think like, you know, oh, why are states like Alabama so legally repressive? They're just like naturally, they have a more naturally conservative population or whatever. No, they've been set up in a way where being repressive means more free labor to sell. So Mm -hmm. it's just a straight up financial incentive is probably, I would argue, the primary force at play here. Yeah. And I mean, the plaintiffs in this case have explicitly called out the way that the state system has used uh, mass incarceration as this new form of slavery. With Alamoreo English, one of the incarcerated workers told the New York Times, quote, they deny us parole to keep us doing the jobs. The mentality is, quote within a quote, why would the slave master let the slave go when he can continue working him for free? Total end quote. In 2021, 90% of parole petitions by black prisoners in Alabama were denied as an example of, of trying to keep this system going. Yeah, and and this isn't just because, and now I don't think many of our listeners would think this, but you'll always hear like uh, right-wingers and racists just be like, well, you're just saying it's related like to the, you're like, the the work system there's no actual evidence of that that's just conspiratorial thinking wrong incorrect uh the the these incarcerated workers are specifically explicitly told by guards that if they refuse to do these unpaid jobs that they'll receive a mark on their record to ensure that their parole is denied and again as we've mentioned with black prisoners being denied parole at twice the rate of white prisoners despite the fact that black 
uh, prisoners are again like all like every state in the United States, greatly grossly overrepresented in the incarcerated population intentionally based on the way the system is set up. That again, it's they get threatened with it. They get the markup. They don't get paroled so that the workers can be forced to continue to providing this free labor. Uh, Refusing unpaid work assignments also results in losing visitation rights Mm -hmm. and can even result being placed in solitary confinement, which is an internationally recognized form of torture. And if workers are sick, they have to ask for permission not to work from the prison guards. Yeah, and uh, so interesting about this is that everything, like the mark that prevents you from getting parole, ability to not work due to being sick, this is all left to the discretion of the guards. Like, there's mm-hmm. no systemic way that, like, these things are being checked. There's not even, like, a liberal veneer of, like, oh, there's a committee you can appeal to. You you literally have to get whatever fucking guard is in charge of you to be nice or your life might just be way more fucked up permanently. Well, and that also then has a, from the point of view of our rulers, another positive like self-reinforcing loop Mm -hmm. that that creates because that system of domination that it creates an arbitrary domination on the point of the guards, it, it encourages and reinforces the, the way that that work, that labor, that position in society generates a, a, fascist ideology mm-hmm. and and create some of the like leading shock troops of for fascism in the United States from within the prison system like cuz prison guards again like you look at who are the people and I know uh, like on January 6th who showed up to mm-hmm. riots and stuff like that who are the people that constantly attack protesters and do all this horrific violence it's cops but it's also prison guards and that's while again we see as a deleterious effect on society unleashing this horrific violence and encouraging this sort of like fascist uh politics for the ruling class it's great it's another bulwark of security for them from the working class so it's like there are layers and layers upon Mm -hmm. the ways that this eats away at the social fabric well it's like this whole underlying issue that we're talking about here is like the very same logic that makes cop city so dangerous Mm -hmm. you know because Mm -hmm. that's like a unification of those two factors where you have the 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 institutionalized police forces but they're going through these very like prison guard training kind of situations and then they're being sent back out as like you know tip of the spear kind of strike agents around the country yeah right and and so just to like talk about some of the historical angle here because like part of it like i think the phrase convict leasing is important Mm -hmm. here because you know, it's the that was the most direct form of continued slavery following the end of Reconstruction immediately after the Civil War, where states in the South passed the infamous Black Codes, which criminalized the very existence of free black workers, uh, making it easy for uh, police and sheriffs and all those people to, to just incarcerate black men for nothing. And then those prisoners were leased out as slave labor, often to the former planter class. And so, like, by even by the turn of the 20th century, the vast majority of Alabama's state budget, their funds, was funded by this system of prison slavery and convict leasing rather than taxing the state's wealthy elite. And so, you know, the, the workers involved in this lawsuit have made it clear that that system just never ended and has only been turbocharged 
since the rise of mass incarceration. Yeah. And I mean, another plaintiff is Robert Earl Council, an incarcerated worker who had helped lead the last year's statewide strike by thousands of prisoners against these horrific conditions and the unjust parole system. Uh, Council is a founder of the Free Alabama Movement, which is aimed at ending the system of slavery and winning the right for incarcerated workers to form unions. And thankfully, some of the broader labor movement have also recognized how this struggle, how the struggle of these workers is linked to the struggle of workers outside of the prison walls. The the Union of Southern Service Workers and the RWDSU are plaintiffs in the lawsuit and have called on Alabama's governor, Kay Ivey, to end the system of prison slavery and allow incarcerated workers to unionize. Which, I mean, uh, the combination of the workers inside of the prison forming their informal unions, along with the more formal unions on the outside forming that coalition, is what is going to be necessary to take down this Mm -hmm. vestige of slavery. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. This is really good to see. Like, this is right in line. And we, we need more of this. Like, we need more unions to be involved in this sort of stuff because I, I, I would liken it to uh, how important it was that the CIO worked with the Communist Party mm-hmm. to form unemployed councils during the Great Depression, understanding that you couldn't leave the unemployed workers out of organization or that they'll be weaponized against not only, you know, like be put into these horrific situations, but also then be weaponized against the organized workers. And so in the same way, like it's both obviously morally necessary for labor to be involved in this, but also just materially. It's like the whole reason this perp- this system exists is to prop up the profit rates of mm-hmm. all of these companies, which are always trying to find more ways to subvert their existing worker organizations. And so it only makes sense for uh, labor to get involved in this. And so I think it's great to see the RWDSU and the Union of Seven Service Workers involved, and, and I hope that we see more unions uh, take take this work up yeah i mean think think of what a big step it was to start unionizing like a lot of service industry places like starbucks or like Mm -hmm. logistics places like amazon and then extend that to like what if we actually brought incarcerated workers and farm workers and the unemployed and anybody covered by the uh railway uh labor relations act Act. yeah exactly the railway labor act if you got all of those people on the same fucking team uh imagine how fucking quickly things would change yeah. yeah, well, it's like, it's like that's why you know I keep point, we keep pointing to the sympathy strikes in in Scandinavia right now. It's like it, when you get to that high of a union density, you can do a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so to move from that, uh, un, you know, maybe not the most fun story. Uh, we do have have some some more upbeat ones here. And this next one is is really in a tradition that I will say, unfortunately, we haven't really talked about a lot super recently, but it's something that we've talked about more broadly on this show quite a bit, which is that just because you don't have necessarily a government-recognized union doesn't mean you can't have a union. That's right. Because, uh, so this, this week... Uh, cargo handling workers at Denver International Airport who don't have a state-recognized union 
decided, well, you know what? We still need to strike anyway. Whether these people are going to recognize this or not, we've got a problem, and collective action is the way to solve it. And so um, about 100 workers at the Swissport cargo terminal at Denver International Airport went on strike for 24 hours this Monday to demand changes to unsafe working conditions. Uh, and Denver cargo workers have been raising safety concerns for over a year, but Swissport management has refused to do anything about it. Uh, boy, where have we heard that one in every industry? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say everywhere. <laughs> um, and so cargo handlers at the airport told local news station KRDO they're routinely asked to use faulty or dangerous equipment, work in dangerous temperatures, both hot and cold, all without sufficient safety training. A fire broke out at one of the cargo warehouses at the airport earlier this year when an improperly installed heater was run into by a truck, endangering workers at the warehouse. God damn. And uh, Andrew Gutman, a cargo agent for Swissport at Denver, said, quote, I've just seen too many of my coworkers get hurt and be put in dangerous situations at work over the past year. We've delivered petitions, filed multiple OSHA complaints, and Swissport has refused to address the real safety concerns that are putting our lives at risk on the job, end quote. Yeah, and I want to point out here that these actions show very much so that they have a union in this workplace. Mm -hmm. The idea Mm -hmm. that they can deliver petitions and, I mean, the coordination to file multiple OSHA complaints, I mean, that is just an example of the workers being having enough collective power to enact these actions and then on top of that this strike of a hundred or more workers also just solidifies it that this is a union workplace well yeah Mm -hmm. and also like people have like a lot of like crazy conspiracy theories about the denver airport or the big blue horse (laughs) out front that like uh, part of it fell and killed the artist who was originally working on it and they're like spooky stuff happens there people randomly die there's a lot of accidents and it's like well okay that just sounds like it's really poorly managed by some like really fucking <laughs> yeah. greedy bosses <laughs> yeah. that's not being haunted unless you're like haunted by capital which yeah, the whole yeah. country is <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah no i know it's just like it's like looking at our crumbling rail infrastructure and being like Oh, so spooky. Oh, the Brock right. Witch is back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, no, this it's just the material incentives created by capitalism. And right. if we really want those things to stop, we need to get rid of those incentives. If but, we want to let the ghost rest in peace properly, we have to destroy <laughs> capitalism. It's true. <laughs> I think that was um, what Pac-Man was about. Huh. That- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sure, why not? Um, you eat and all so, the yeah, coins, so eat- and then the ghosts go away. <laughs> Even though these workers... Even though their union hasn't been like efficiently, officially recognized by the state, you know, obviously they're able to do all these coordinated actions, and they have uh, recently reached out to the SEIU for support in protesting their conditions, and have been receiving that support, which is really great to see. Um, and so, like, because like they they mentioned in that quote, like workers have circulated petitions, they've they've gone individually to lobby management. That's the thing we hear every fucking union drive from managers. No, we don't need a union. You can my door is always open. You can always come talk to me, and we can solve these problems together. Bullshit. Again, these workers did that. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey. You said that we could tell you about problems. Well, we have all this faulty safety equipment. Then we need good equipment. And their boss was like, oh, thank you. We see you. We hear you. Get out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Have, have, you ever so, tri- have we ever tried doing like, I don't know, like the Dutch brain version of going to the boss individually where you all go to the boss individually at the same time in a big line that stretches all the way through the warehouse or whatever? <laughs> like, <laughs> 
<laughs> That'd be an interesting collective action yeah. of individuals. Yeah. You know, I just like playing with ideas, basically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and so like again, the, the workers have, have tried every sort of avenue that supposedly exists to resolve these problems, and the bosses have refused to listen, and so they're hoping that this strike will make their point crystal clear. And I think that, again, this is an important story because it... It's I think I think it's really important not only to talk to, you know, folks about what is a union, how can you join a union, the incredible things that, you know, unions have been doing over the last couple of years, but also laying out for folks that it's like, look, there's the whole legal system for getting your official union, but it's like fundamentally a union is workers taking collective action in the workplace to better their conditions. Well, there was whether it's a- officially recognized or not. Well, yeah, cuz there wasn't a legal system for getting a union until unions right. made that fucking happen. So where did they come from? <laughs> you know, like Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think these it's from everything the workers have said, they've really bent over backwards to do everything the way that management wanted them to do it. And management, unsurprisingly, has refused to listen. And so, you know, the, these workers have already demonstrated that they're organized. And so if like the bosses think that just ignoring them is going to solve the problem, I'm like, I think you're just going to make it so that you now have a bunch of workers who are in the SEIU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, again, solidarity with these uh, these Denver workers in their efforts to actually win a safe workplace. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, for our next story, returning to the South from whatever the hell Denver counts as, uh, <laughs> the Mountain West is that it's geography in the U.S. is mad confusing, but uh, especially <laughs> regions. But, but uh, yeah, Pennsylvania is go Lu- in the middle in, in the Midwest. Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania is its own thing. Eastern Pennsylvania is definitely part of the East Coast. It's fucked up. But we're going to Louisiana is the point. Uh, so that's right. We're going to talk about some nurses who are joining National Nurses United because slowly but surely we have seen unions chip away at the non-union South and from Starbucks Workers United to the unions of Southern Service Workers to the UAW themselves. More and more unions are refusing to simply give up on organizing this enormous swath of the U.S. working class. And so workers in Louisiana made another big step in that direction last week when healthcare workers at University Medical Center in New Orleans, sorry, I know I'm not saying it correctly, voted 82% in favor of joining National Nurses United. And this is the first union at a private healthcare facility in the state. Yeah, that that blew my mind. In, <laughs> in the year of our Lord, 2023 is the first private healthcare facility to get a union in louisiana i mean when i read that i the first time i thought for sure it was going to be followed with like in 16 years (laughs) but yeah no no, ever yeah ever (laughs) so uh these 600 workers made history by forming the largest new private sector bargaining unit in louisiana in almost 30 years and like nearly every healthcare story we discuss on this show the workers say that the main issues pushing them to organize were unsafe staffing and safety issues on the job and dion jones an rn at the hospital said quote this is a historic day for umc for new orleans and the surrounding area and for all of louisiana and the south nurses at our hospital wanted a voice so we can speak up for our patients and ourselves and we wanted a seat at the table to be involved in shaping the future of our hospital now that we've won our union we have both end quote and historic day it is because again just the first union in private in a private healthcare facility in the state i mean this i hope is the beginning of a, a much bigger wave and something that we've been yeah. kind of pointing to in the organizing of the south but just like what needs to happen of just like 
an organizing wave throughout the entire South and a comprehensive wave as well. And I would I would love to see a labor revolution in this country led by folks from New Orleans, the last place in America that has a coherent cultural identity. yeah although post katrina they've done everything they can to try and destroy it you will Um, never destroy it new orleans (laughs) is too strong (laughs) that's right but no i mean yeah to your point exactly like i think one of the things that's always so important why like you know i wanted to mention this story is that like there's a real barrier uh mentally when you're going up against something that it's not it's hard on its own but it's also there aren't any other examples you can lean on in your area because then it becomes really easy for bosses and managers to be like, nobody's unionized around here. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not how we do things. That's not how the South works. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody loves their individualist freedom, blah, blah, and all the, you know, all this stupid Instead bullshit. Instead of a raise, but, would you like a gun? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. But it's like, that's the thing. It's it, that that stuff is more effective when you're the first Mm -hmm. and that's why like that adds that extra difficulty but the flip side of that is once the first has made it over that hurdle then immediately you have that example all the other hot healthcare workers in louisiana and new orleans can now point to this organizing drive and say no look it is possible and it's not just possible at some tiny boutique's exception Mm -hmm. somewhere here or there this is a big ass hospital it's 700 workers like that's a big deal yeah so like yeah this is really encouraging yeah and i mean just to give a little bit more weight to what you're saying about how they they will use that as a a leverage against unionizing i mean in my example they were like oh you're gonna have to create your own local because there is no local there you're gonna have to do all this other stuff because there wasn't a local and i mean but like just the idea that Suddenly, you know, you being alone, they just try to isolate you in that way. And it is an effective tactic, but it, clearly it is able to be overcome. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in my example and in these workers example. Well, and I think the other thing that helps here that's so and this is, I think, why we see this so much with both nurses and teachers is that in those professions, you have that extra element of unity which is the care for the patients or for students Mm -hmm. and and because it's like you are providing as a part of your job like a true public service you are a critical part of your community and it's like all the people healthcare workers teachers like i mean you you meet these folks and they're the most dedicated people you know in this field that you're going to encounter and so i think that is one of the things that is for these professions that can you know when mobilized when you have resources put behind it when you have support especially from like you know a big national union like uh national nurses united that can help sustain your unity in the face of those attacks yeah and i mean like following that line of academia we should then go to our last story of the episode where we're going to talk about how academic workers continue to win more and more victories across the country and not just in elections because this week yale's graduate student uh, union announced that they have reached a tentative agreement for their very first contract where over 3,000 grad student workers at Yale got their union election uh, certified to join Unite Here Local 33 in January, uh, they finally, in just under a year, which is pretty good timing, have settled on a contract. Workers will vote this week, uh, vote this weekend on whether to ratify the new five-year deal. Now, 
Five-year deal, I think that I do want to say something about this before we get too much further, is that I know, I mean, I maybe I'm not as familiar with grad students and how long you are in a grad student program, but I'm guessing at some point there will be some four-year students, or maybe even less, I don't know, where they might not actually even be around a contract negotiation. So I think a five-year deal is kind of rough, at least in that uh, aspect of it. Yeah, although there's, there is another component to their contract that also goes into the i think why you know they might be looking for a longer term deal because the contract contains a kind of a weird provision where Yale agreed to recognize the union through 2031 and the reason they put that in there was of concern from the workers about the possibility that if the you know Trump wins uh which is probably going to happen mm-hmm. um next year that when the new Republican uh, appointees in the NLRB try to dismantle everything that was done over the last couple of years, they may try and roll back the rights of workers to have um, graduate student unions at private universities specifically because that then there's precedence for this. Like that, it, like, a, like 20 years ago, the NLRB decertified grad student unions and that where there was a big delay where workers had to, you know, fight legislatively and all this stuff to just get that right, which is bullshit, um, but is one of the vagaries of the U.S. labor system. And so I think part of the reason they may have been more willing to go with that longer term contract, even though you're right, it does create the situation where you may have periods where you get kind of low engagement from members because they're not going to be around for the next contract negotiation. But when you have the trade-off of, well, what if in three years the NLRB says we can't have a private sector mm-hmm. union and Yale's able to take advantage of that? So you have absolutely it, it's a it's a it's a contradiction. It's difficult to deal with. Well, it's interesting because a lot of unions don't have to worry about this kind of insulating tactic because they're just right. like what you would think of as like traditional, you know, uh, regular like industrial unions or trade unions or whatever. But this is like. It, it it wounds me because it it shows that they are using their like full brain potential to try and get what's best for them but they shouldn't have to spend resources on making these weird hedged bet kind of parlay things we should just have an institutional structure that says like these unions are fine forever you just can't decertify them and so then right. they can worry about like getting their shorter term contract or getting something that's going to be more beneficial to people who might only be in the program program for a little while yeah how are we gonna get that sort of thing i mean <laughs> are there any examples in history of people <laughs> fighting and winning you know permanent union status maybe even on a uh you know systemic level you're asking Damn, what is to what be if, done <laughs> <laughs> what if the unions were in charge of the industries hmm Damn. But, uh, I mean, this new contract (laughs) also includes major raises for all PhD student workers of about 19% in the first year. Wages will raise from $40,000 today to nearly $50,000 next year to an on average of $55,000 in 2028 at the end of the deal. This will make grad student workers at Yale the highest paid in the Ivy League. The new contract adds dental coverage for the first time and includes partial coverage for dependents. The deal also creates an independent grievance procedure for the first time, which, as we've pointed out so many times, is very important, especially Mm -hmm. in these systems where the people who are really, like, 
who you would be forming a grievance against are the people you're supposed to report to about the grievance, which right. obviously is not a system that would function for addressing those actual grievances, again, showing the absolute necessity of a union contract. Yeah, so this is really great because, you know, as, as we've mentioned, like, it's in our system unfortunately you have two giant hurdles you have to you have to jump over to go from being not officially recognized as having a union to getting your union contract winning that election but then also getting that first contract and so getting that here with you know the independent grievance procedure the big raises all the, the you know the healthcare improvements it's a big win and it's something that again creates a precedence that now workers at other schools can use you know to bargain over as well so congratulations to these workers yeah mm-hmm. and congratulations to the listeners for making it to the <laughs> meme review once again you've done it folks you are really committed to this i mean this is not the first time you've made it here obviously i mean i'm just impressed that it is just constantly happening and today's like meme badge is the grass badge Try to tune into the end of every episode to collect all of the badges. That's correct. That's correct. So our first one is an institution of the meme review, which is a DeShare Zone meme, which has a, you know, a skeleton almost always, but this time is a purple skeleton pulling like a, I don't know, like a spider web veil or like a mummy wrap veil from its face. It says, I will never drill down, take this, um, (laughs) take this offline, disrupt. Uh, disrupt the, the, disrupt yeah disrupt <laughs> uh touch base ping Torch you base <laughs> unpack this have bandwidth move the needle uh, do not ask me to circle back yeah which is i believe a bunch of references to email uh speak in corporate office structures my boss loves to ask if i want to touch base on something in an email and it takes every ounce of restraint i have to just email back like couldn't you have used that first email to start touching base (laughs) (laughs) yeah this uh i don't know this meme hit pretty pretty close to home for me because i use almost all of this language in my job i don't use move the needle but pretty much all the rest of these I use on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, it would be really great if I could ping you later in the day and just make sure you have bandwidth before we start to pull the trigger on that, this one. That'd be awesome. That's, <laughs> that's how middle-class professionals talk. I don't know how else to talk to them. Yeah, we really got to <laughs> drill down on this uh, to, you know, make sure to uh, move the needle uh, and unpack this issue. Yeah, if you could just unpack this, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right i'm not used to being the butt of our jokes on here, but, um, <laughs> it's my own fault for having a job that has manager in the title even though i don't actually manage people but anyways <laughs> moving on to our next meme from <laughs> a completely different level of analysis mm-hmm. on this one uh, very important to uh recent hot button topics Uh, Not only just in the news more broadly, but also specifically in a lot of labor organizing, which is what if this is what happens when AI takes over? And then we've got a picture of a T-800 from the Terminator series labeled Skanet. And and it's got a goofy hat and it's playing a trumpet. How's he playing a trumpet? He doesn't have any lips. (laughs) I don't mean to discriminate or whatever, but you need lips to play trumpet. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know how Terminators work. Maybe you can vibrate the teeth. <laughs> also, it is very funny to think that, like, what if we, you know, this is a total misunderstanding of what AI is in general, but what if we did create, like, a sentient world god being that ran everything for us, and everything was great, but we all had to listen to real big fish covers all the time? Oh. <laughs> yeah. What if, what if your life was perfect, except you had to listen to the greatest hits of the Aquabats every morning? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, I, bu- I believe that's what Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, was about. <laughs> <laughs> that's extremely uh, correct, I believe. Uh, <laughs> then our next meme is a Godfather meme, right? That's the Godfather. Oh, yeah, it's uh, the classic you come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding meme. Yeah, so this is uh, you come to me on, on this day, the 15th anniversary of the time a guy threw a shoe at George at george bush uh which <laughs> a very important holiday in our uh religion i'm glad that we celebrate it's just That's uh right. and also there was a bunch of other good memes about this throughout you know the many different uh places that i've been but uh yeah so uh red salute to to that guy still yeah, 15 m- years later muntadar al zaidi you can get in touch with him on twitter he'll like your tweet probably he's a really nice guy <laughs> <laughs> hell, hell yeah, yeah. hell yeah uh, for our next meme, we have one that just says, uh, well, rather, the photo is a is a guy sitting in his desk on a laptop, but he's staring at this, like, disembodied panel, and in the panel, you have, like, an 18th century ship crashing on, yeah. like, I, I think it's an iceberg, I believe, uh, and it says above it, uh, in Onion Headline style, study finds 100% of men would immediately leave their desk job if asked to embark upon a trans-Antarctic expedition on a big wooden ship. <laughs> and I gotta say, is this true yeah for me anyway yeah um, i would leave a much better d- job than a shitty desk job to go on a trans-antarctic expedition on a big wooden ship are you kidding me i mean i have seen the terror and it did seem pretty cool yeah there's huh. not a lot of like i there's a lot of stuff in popular culture like horror movies and roller coasters where you're supposed to just like basically scare yourself until you shit your pants for fun and i don't really like that i, oh, I, I do. it feels flimsy <laughs> and like i'm doing it for nothing i want the stakes to be high i want it to be like <laughs> scientific advancement or we all die like <laughs> well, there you go um but this last one, I just loved this picture. I, I, I saw this from uh, the Magical Memes of Moth Van Nipplesburg, <laughs> which is a, uh, a meme page. Uh, that So shout outs to them on Facebook. Yeah, but, apparently they're <laughs> listeners. Yeah, but so this one is, it's just, it's this <laughs> picture of this very goofy looking cartoonish person who's like very like exaggerated abstract art style. Uh, they're very pink. And they're just, it's like they're walking in one direction and then suddenly something has caught their attention and they've craned their head all the way back to look around behind them very excitedly. And then it's captioned, my feeling when I overhear a coworker I've never talked to in my life using a left-wing slogan at the time clock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Also, I mean, uh, not for the listeners, but I'm going to try to include this uh, because watching Dan read this meme while trying to crane his neck back like the person... like the image in the meme was truly an addition while he's also trying to stay on the mic at the exact same time the contradictions mounting 
<laughs> it's very difficult. I just love this is such a I love the the art style this 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 uh this guy's drawn in. It's just I could just imagine him saying like, "Oh, hello." Yeah. <laughs> well, I like this too cuz I think a lot of people think that if you're like a serious Marxist or a serious organizer or whatever, then you have to be serious all the time. But I think a really important component of being a serious anything is being a, a real real goofy motherfucker when it's appropriate. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but this is also just I think a very relatable thing of like Oh, I did not know you, but you now seem very cool, and we now need to become best friends. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Well, with that uplifting meme, we are going to wrap here. We want to thank everyone who supports us, and you, listener, could support us as well uh, at patreon.com slash workstoppage and get access to all of our bonus content, including our new series on organizing in the military which we are going to be wrapping up this week with a story about a very underspoken about revolution in western europe and it's gonna be a really good episode so become a patron and support us as an entirely listener supported show you can also jump in the discord to let us know what you think about all of these memes or any of these stories and write us a review somewhere if you want us if you want to do a little bit more you can follow us in all the places the links are at workstoppagepod.com also the music lists are at workstoppagepod.com if you're interested in what songs came after the episodes and listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Could it happen to anyone, especially you? If somebody had came on a ship and enslaved your people too? Claiming they were the chosen ones, so they massacred everyone. And the rest had converted to Jesus, yet we were the unholy ones. They uprooted and then took a piss to form our family tree. 